Just a note before we start. Our show talks about touchy subjects that may be difficult for some of our listeners. Take care of yourself. If you feel you need to seek help, see the links at the end of our show notes for resources. Welcome back to Touchy Subjects. I'm Sean. And I'm Amanda. And today we are joined by special guest Rob Volpe. So thank you for joining us today, Rob. Hi, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Amanda. It's great to be here. Hi, everybody. So we have brought Rob in to talk with you all today because we're going to do an episode on empathy. And Rob is amazing at talking about empathy. And I know we've done an episode on it before, but you can never talk too much about empathy. So Rob, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, I'd love to, Sean. Thank you. And so, hi, um, Rob Volpe. Um, I call myself an empathy activist, and I've I've carried that moniker for quite a few years now uh, because empathy is my superpower, uh, something that has been near and dear to my heart um, since I was a child growing up in small town Indiana. Um, but then as an adult, I, in my sort of day job, if you would, uh, I'm the CEO of Ignite 360, and we are an insights and strategy as well as a training firm that puts together um, insights programs. We help our clients understand how their consumers, other people are thinking and feeling and behaving and making sense with that. And they need to make an empathetic connection to it. So through the course of all of that work, uh, was finding that there was a real gap in people's ability. Like they knew they needed to have empathy, but they didn't really understand how to do it. And, you know, as, as you've seen um, the, the state of discourse and civility and just progress, uh, you know, I'm not going to say fall apart, but has definitely hit a lot of potholes um, over the last couple decades. Uh, there's been a call for like, oh, we need to have more empathy and we need to go do this and we need to go do that. But if you, what we realized was if you're still bringing your judgment into a situation, into a conversation, if you're not asking good questions, if you're not actively listening, you're never going to be able to get to that place where you can, you know, proverbially walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. And so uh, at, at Ignite 360, uh, we developed the five steps to empathy, uh, which is what we now offer in coaching and training. But I've also then uh, taken it further and written a book, which just came out a week ago, called Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis One Conversation at a Time. And in the book, I break down the five steps and go into detail around those. I provide some um, grounding information around empathy and what it is and try to demystify that. Uh, but then I really bring the five steps to life through my own stories and my own experiences, um, you know, my failures more often and some successes where I've been challenged with somebody that is other from me. And in the line of work that I do, if I'm going into a stranger's home for an ethnographic interview and I'm gonna hang out in their house for two hours and ask questions and, and listen, you quickly learn in this field that not everybody is the same. And we are all actually quite, we have some very similar underlying values, but the way things get expressed, the way we choose to do things is just different. Um, and that can really challenge you. So I've had quite a few adventures over the years and I share those stories 
in the book in service of helping people understand what the five steps are all about and and how they might show up and then there's uh, what i call empathetic reflections at the end of every chapter so that the reader can then think back on how this might apply in their life or a time when they've faced a similar situation awesome thank you for that introduction and what i do want to point out to you rob is the one thing that i do love about your book is that fact that you use stories because it makes it so much easier to be able for the reader to relate to what information is being shared with them because when we tell stories, that's the easiest way for us to connect. Sharing stories, even if our stories might not be 100% similar, I can think of a story or a situation that I've been in that was close to that. And that helps me then be able to kind of see the perspective that you're coming from in that situation. And it's one of the things I love so much about it. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's story. And we are all storytellers. That is how our society evolved from the time the first, you know, human um, picked up charcoal or whatever it was they were using and started drawing on cave walls. We have been storytellers and it's how we teach people. It's how uh, traditions are passed on um, and, and narrative. And so it felt natural to me to want to tell stories. I wasn't setting out to write a self-help book or a business book that was very didactic and you must do this and you must do that. I wanted people to learn. I wanted people to be engaged and to, to learn through story and reflect on their own situations. And, and the stories are honestly just so juicy um, and, and interesting. And, you know, the going into the dirtiest house in America, the things you find in people's bathrooms, um, without having to look in the, the cabinets. Um, you know, there's some really fun, engaging stories that that do help uh, people connect to it. And it is ultimately, you know, we talk about um, uh, the power of the story of one. And you can talk about, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people, I think as of Saturday, it was like 946,000 people had died from COVID here in the United States. And that number is just astronomical and it's hard to wrap your head around. And as I live in San Francisco, and that's actually about the size of the population of the, the city of San Francisco itself, not the metro area, but the city proper is about that size. So it's like, okay, that would be like everybody dying. That's really hard to imagine and even understand like, well, what do I do with that? But then when I start to tell you the story of one person who might have passed away from COVID and, you know, she was a beloved school teacher um, that had served over 20 years in her district and had mentored so many other teachers and students and kept in touch with them, um, you know, and her name was Rosemary and Rosemary died uh, just six hours after her husband, Phil, passed away, who was also a school teacher and the local uh, high school football coach. Suddenly, you're, that's, that's hitting you. The 946 is hitting up in your head as I'm touching my cranium. Um, but the story of Rosemary and Phil is touching your heart. You, you're, you're feeling it in a different way, and it, it um, invokes a different reaction and response. So yeah, story of the individual and story of one is so powerful to help motivate behavior. Absolutely. Um, so Rob, before we kind of delve into what your five steps are and, and all of that stuff, um, would you mind giving our audience just like a, just a brief description of what empathy is and why it's important just so that everyone's on the same page before we get into this? 
Sure. So yeah, Amanda, thanks. Um, you know, when I ask people, I can ask the two of you, since there are two of you here, give me a definition of empathy. What would you say? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? You want to go first, Sean? Or throw me under the bus first. <laughs> no Googling. Just tell me oh, what let me, just, let me just Google the uh, Webster's Dictionary definition of empathy real quick. Um, if I were to put a definition on empathy for me, I would kind of say treating, mm, see, it's hard. It's hard to put a definition on it when I'm like on the spot. Like I know what I mean when I say empathy, but like the definition is tough. I guess I would just kind of say that I would describe empathy as placing yourself in somebody's shoes, but taking into account their lived experiences, really trying to understand who somebody is and really just kind of getting an understanding of like who they are and how they've gotten to where they're at. Awesome. That's one definition of empathy. Amanda, what came to mind for you? So I didn't actually think of like, um, like a specific definition. I think of what empathy means to me. Mm -hmm. And to me, like empathy or being empathetic is, you know, really getting into like the emotions of another person that we're talking to, you know, feeling the pain through them or feeling their joy through them kind of vicariously and um like me considering myself an empathetic person like if somebody else is sad around me I don't just feel sad for them I feel sad as if that situation is affecting me not as it would them because obviously I'm not in their same shoes but like as it would if it were me yes i don't know i don't know <laughs> Amanda's That's... definition was better <laughs> <laughs> no they were both actually great definitions and neither one of you is wrong actually um, and that's yes. what's confusing, <laughs> though, about empathy, because there are these different definitions, um, and 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 they are correct. So when I'm giving a presentation or a talk on empathy, I'll ask that question of the audience, and inevitably you get something along the lines of feeling the feelings of someone else as if you were them, which Amanda is what where you are. Um, then you get the seeing the perspective or the point of view of somebody else, which Sean, you were a little more in that territory. And then you also get the walking a mile in someone else's shoes um, as if you were them. And that's where you were talking about like the lived experience coming in and, and perspective taking. So what we've just mentioned though is perspective. And then another one is about feeling. And those are two different things. Um, and, and there's actually at least two different types of empathy. And, and as I set out to really kind of demystify and break things down and make it more relatable to people, I went with the framework that most academics have, have adopted that there's cognitive empathy, which is the perspective taking. And then there's emotional empathy, which is feeling the feelings of somebody else. And neuroscientists have actually found that those two things light up different parts of our brain, but they do actually activate in our brain. There's evidence that we are born with the ability to be empathetic, uh, which is awesome and good news um, for, for everybody. 
but it gets really confusing because you're like, okay, so I'm supposed to feel the feelings of somebody, but no, wait, I, I can't because I so disagree with their perspective. You know, if they have opposing beliefs on, um, you know, political issues is kind of the easy one to throw out. If they're on the other side of the aisle, it's really hard for me to feel how they might be feeling. And you don't have to, that's a different type of, of empathy, but maybe you can take their perspective. And so I try to help people understand that there's these differences that are happening. And so Amanda, um, you know, as you talked about it, there's also then people that are empaths that are naturally more sensitive. They may be referred to as highly sensitive people that have this beautiful gift of being able to tap into the emotions and feel what other people are feeling around them and taking that on as though it were their own. Um, and it's really, it's, it's fantastic. I, I think as I talk about empathy, that type of empathy um, and I think the the highly sensitives and the the empaths are are the um, uh, exception makes it sound like they're other, but they're they're a, a, a more highly evolved version. But typically, emotional empathy is what you're able to experience with like your really close friends, with your family, the people that are really closest to you. Um, that you are just so in tune with. And, and you probably have very similar rituals and beliefs and behaviors and values that are helping to, to ground that. So I mentioned drawing on cave walls. So if you go back to that analogy, think about the people that might've lived in your cave. Um, if you, we were all living back in those times doing some sort of Flintstonian podcast thing, rock casting, I don't know. Um, but in that, like who lives in your cave? And those are probably the people that you would have had emotional empathy. And then the people from the cave down the road come to visit and you don't really know who they are. They look like you, they may sound kind of like you, but they're not you, they're not part of that immediate tribe. Um, and so you have to use cognitive empathy in order to understand where they might be coming from. You may not be able to feel the feelings because they have different beliefs and rituals and values, but hopefully you can get to a place of cognitive empathy, understanding where they're coming from. Maybe you are having a dispute and I am so messing up and blending together agrarian society and cave dwelling and all that. But imagine there's a field and we need to divide up who's gonna conquer what part and till and work the field. You need to have cognitive empathy because cognitive empathy would tell you, okay, they need to feed their family. They need to feed the people that live in their cave. I get that, I understand they have to provide as well. So how can we work together to um, divide up, you know, whether it's our territory for hunting and gathering or the agrarian side, whatever that is. And that's what empathy actually ultimately enables and why empathy is so important. Empathy is this, um, uh, you'll, you will find, <laughs> if you haven't noticed already, I love analogies and metaphors. So um, another one is empathy is like the glucosamine in our joints. It's that thing, that lubricant that we need. And you have many different joints um, in many different parts of your body. And empathy helps enable different things to happen. It enables communication and collaboration, uh, co reaching compromise, like I was just talking about with the other cave dwellers. Um, critical thinking. You need empathy to have critical thinking, decision-making. Um, is involves empathy, trust. Empathy plays a role in building trust, in reaching forgiveness and having compassion. 
And all of those things, like if you're able to do that, then you're able to be a better partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, parent, child, um, uh, team member at work or in an organization, manager, leader, like all of the things, all the things, neighbor, all the things that we are in our society. And that's where the erosion of empathy skills, the atrophying of our empathy muscle has hindered our society because we're not able to be our best selves in all of these roles that we play because we're not executing those skills with from a, using empathy as part of the our communication as one example yeah i think i want to point out that i liked the most like especially towards the end there is talking about that atrophying of our empathy muscle because like you said we are all hardwired to be able to be empathetic every single one of us but i don't believe that the importance that we have placed on things specifically in like our societal culture doesn't allow for that empathy muscle to really be flexed we focus a lot on what your deadline is what the outcome is how do we get there the quickest and most effective way possible and it seems like we've cut empathy out of that because we aren't focusing on the person themselves yes we have a horrible addiction or compulsion of for productivity and there's so many tools available to make us more productive however we are not robots we are not uh, automatons on the assembly line i mean maybe we are in some big matrixy sort of thing <laughs> but um in the the cognizant conscious life that we have we are human and and i think that's something that the pandemic has actually revealed is all of a sudden so many people have had to deal with working from home or so many people have had to continue to go to their place of employment but deal with having kids um, that weren't in school all of a sudden and not having childcare resources available because the school and the other activities were closed or, or off and that was then requiring managers, leaders, whoever that person was to have empathy with the way, you know, what, what your employee is going through. If we were sitting here and one of my cats like was meowing at me incessantly, which does happen from time to time, or if I had a child and they were doing cartwheels behind me, um, you'd probably go, oh, what's, what's going on? Like it would give you some clues about what's happening in Rob's life at this moment in time. And maybe Rob's a little like frazzled or, or stressed. Um, and therefore, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to get the report done, but maybe I need to share. Maybe I need to talk a little bit more about what I'm going through so I can clear that out of my cognitive headspace, my cognitive load, so that I can then focus on the report. And that's what managers need to start to appreciate and understand. And I'm not talking about I mean, yes, it is, I guess, the person you report into, but we are all leaders in some form or fashion in our life, and we need to be using empathy, and it does have a place in order to help us get things done. I think that that's one thing that maybe hopefully this pandemic has taught us is that when it comes to our work life, we're always, you know, historically have been told to, <clears throat> you know, kind of like leave those emotions at the door and, you know, the things that are going on at home don't matter here because now you're at work. And I hope that people now realize that 
that's just not possible. That's not something that we can just do. You can't shut off everything else that's going on in your life just because now you've walked through this arbitrary door and people working from home now don't have that separation and are having to learn a whole new way to kind of cope with things because those, those home problems or, you know, things that are going on at home are now happening in your home office. So you just have to like, we're learning this whole new way to kind of try and adapt and overcome these things. And and yes, absolutely, Amanda. And people are, you know, the, the great resignation that's going on that people might've heard of, you know, every month back in the fall, a new record was getting set for the number of people that were leaving their jobs voluntarily. And it was really just replacing the record that had been set the month before. The number just kept going up and up and up. And one of the um, one of the reasons why people were leaving was because they didn't feel like they had empathetic leadership. There wasn't that support in their organization for what they were going through, and and so that does make somebody feel disconnected and and unattached. Um, and 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 yeah, it. I haven't been able to pinpoint exactly when emotion got sucked out of the workplace or when it wasn't okay. And the thing that really confounds me about it, there's a quote from Henry Ford from 1918. So over a hundred years ago, um, modern industrialist says the secret to success is the ability to see one person's angle, the angle of one person and adopt it as your own point of view. And I slightly paraphrased that, but he's talking about empathy. He's talking about cognitive empathy and perspective taking. And, you know, so it, it was around in some way, shape or form. I don't know what sort of squeezed it out of us. And then I kind of moved through the decades and we went through the depression and the World War II and women entered the workplace and then they were pushed out as men returned home. Um, and maybe it was then, maybe it was in the 50s that all of a sudden, and that sort of macho male, um, you know, madmen sort of uh, workplace demeanor started to take over and, and, and uh, a, a variation of what we would call today bro culture um, was, was happening in the workplace. And I think it's just now there's this confluence of events that have happened. I mean, you know, We've seen things deteriorate for so long. We've noticed and felt the sting of the lack of empathy ourselves because maybe we've, you know, had um, touchy encounters with people on social media, um, and so that's definitely one area where empathy is is organically, intuitively lacking. Um, we've also run into the political discourse. We've had leaders that are not necessarily espousing empathy or our current president who is a champion of empathy but isn't necessarily always you know Mm -hmm. talking about it or displaying it and that leaves people questioning like what's going on Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of different things that are happening and then there's the pandemic and everybody's working from home and life just got turned completely upside down and all of those things are, are coming together to a head where it's like, wait a minute, we, there is a better way. There is another way and we need to, to do better. So if we want to then start looking at how we can do better, Rob, your book offers us five steps. 
Yes. So Thank what you. are those five steps and how can we start using them? Yes. So, so the five steps to empathy, again, those are the things that when you're having an interaction with somebody, when you're engaging with somebody, these are the things you need to be thinking about and breaking down and overcoming. Um, so they're the barriers to overcome in order to reach a place of empathy. And the first step is dismantling judgment. And um I find and what I've seen with my corporate clients, that tends to be the hardest uh, kind of step. There's a lot of ego that gets in the way and our judgment is made up of so many things, our, our past experiences, our biases, our stereotypes. Um, and so, but if you can't dismantle your judgment, I mean, it's, it's a brick wall. And if you can't dismantle it, you're never gonna get beyond it, obviously. Um, so dismantling judgment's the first step. The second step is asking good questions. So, so often we're asking closed questions and a closed question is something that has a yes or a no answer. Um, but if you wanna understand how somebody is feeling, you need to ask an open question and one that's exploratory and that's not threatening. So that means that you don't use the word why, you use who, how, what, where, when, in order and reframe your question in order to get at the why. So it's all about asking good questions. And then once you're doing that, you've got to listen to the answer. And so step three is active listening. Um, and to actively listen, it's not just what are the words that you're hearing, but what's the body language? What are the nonverbal cues that you're picking up? What are the other things that you might notice um, You know, in a room? the kid doing the cartwheels behind you. Um, Sean, I would ask you about those brightly colored objects on the shelf that I see behind you through our video link. Um, and, and you might say, oh, that's my colleague's desk. I have no idea what that is. Um, or that might they're, be yours. And we might have a really good conversation. Animals. Those are what? They're stuffed animals. I use them for my discussions with kids when I talk about bullying prevention. There you go. They're brightly lit. So it's a little hard for me to, to see, but yeah. And that's, and then we would end up having a good conversation of a bullying prevention and dealing with that. And, and, and that's because I'm actively listening. I'm paying attention to your surroundings. Um, step four is integrating into understanding. And this one judgment comes back in here. The, the example I like to give, and I'm just going to ask the two of you a question again and, and put you on the spot and hopefully I'm dairy intolerant is not your answer. Um, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Each one of you. Easy. It's moose tracks. Moose tracks. Amanda. Moose tracks. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> See, it's the best flavor. It's just now, right. what if you meet somebody that doesn't like moose tracks and they like vanilla. See, vanilla is the number two option. Like I've pointed out many times to my friends, like when we go places, like I'll always try new flavors of ice cream, like different ones. And every time I do it, I'm like, man, I kind of just wish this was vanilla. So vanilla is a pretty good choice too. Okay. What if it's peach? I mean, everyone has their own choices and flavors. I wouldn't, pick peach flavored ice cream but to each that's why own. there's enough room in the freezer for two things of ice cream at least um <laughs> yes and so sean what you were starting to do is integrate into your understanding before you let judgment just kind of cut you off so you you were like there's people have their ability to have their own favorite flavor of ice cream that's good and then you and i'm paraphrasing but you were like and they're wrong 
Um, and that's where judgment just came back in. But integrating into understanding is exactly that, what you were first saying, it's making room or Amanda, as you said, yeah, if my brain was a freezer, like there's room for many flavors and to understand why people like the different flavors of ice cream. And you can use that to be curious and ask, well, what is it about peach? What do you like about it? And the answer that you get might be what you expected. It might be something completely different. Um, and then you can at least learn more about that other person and then use solution imagination, which is the fifth step to say, okay, so now I'm a person that likes peach ice cream. What, how would I move through the world? What does that look like? And it may just tell you that you would order peach ice cream um, when you go to an ice cream store but you would at least be able to appreciate the experience and understand where they're coming from. And that just, I mean, that makes the world a much better, more beautiful place because you're able to appreciate how other people are thinking and feeling. And hopefully they're gonna extend the same to you and understand why in the world would anyone like moose tracks? So, so there, I said it. And going with that same analogy, like, all right. So I, I like analogies too, Rob, but, um you know, maybe I've never even considered peach ice cream before. I didn't even know that that was a flavor. And this person that I'm, I'm with now is like, man, I really love peach ice cream. It's my favorite, but I can never find it anywhere. Now, when I go out into the world, I'm looking for peach ice cream and I'm going to be like, Hey, guess what? I found it here, here, and here, or I picked you up a pint and just having someone bring that knowledge to your attention that peach ice cream is out there. And it's desirable to some people makes me notice it more and appreciate it more out there, even if I don't want it myself. Absolutely. Yes, totally. And you're helping that person out. You're giving them, um, you're, you're being empathetic with them and they're going to appreciate that. And that actually strengthens the connection that the two of you have. And then you know, who knows where that will, will lead. When there's the great moose track shortage of 2024, they'll have hoarded some for you and they'll have some in their freezer. I will be devastated if I can't get moose tracks. <laughs> but I also want to point out in that first step, Rob, the hitting that brick wall because of your judgments, your biases, uh, and a discussion that I'll often have with my audience when I'm trying to discuss um, the social fa- social determinants of health. So explaining social factors and how these social factors impact people's overall outcomes in those communities. Um, One of the things I point out to them is that we all have stereotypes and biases. No one is immune from having those things. Just like how I had a bias against somebody who said their favorite flavor was peach ice cream. Like we're going to have those biases. And our brains will often hit on that cognitive cruise control Or we're like, okay, so I'm interacting with this person who looks like this or who has these things about them. This is the pathway I'm going to take to navigate that conversation because those are the stereotypes or biases I've placed on them. And that's when it becomes a problem. And that's why the five steps seem simple, but they are Mm -hmm. not easy. Um, and you, yeah, that's, it's such a great way that you explain that you, and we do default into our patterns and we use those past experiences and our judgment to kind of, yeah, like, oh, I'm going to go down this path with this person, or I'm literally going to cross the street because that person makes me 
uncomfortable. And it's, and this is the thing about judgment too. There's two different types of judgment. There's making a judgment where it's like, Hmm, that person looks like there is like, they are yelling. There's might be mental health issues going on. I don't feel safe. Therefore I will feel safer if I cross the street. So that's making a judgment versus, um, being judgmental, which would be looking at someone and just not liking their appearance, their their choice of clothing, or perhaps they have a disability of some sort, and you're casting aspersion on them in your mind, whether or hopefully you're not saying it, but even just in your mind, and making taking a different path versus making eye contact and engaging and just nodding and saying hi as you pass each other on the on the sidewalk. Thank you for clarifying those two different things, Rob, because I think that's something a lot of people lack is knowing the difference between, you know, making a judgment based on what you're seeing versus being judgmental about your preconceived notions that are already out there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, and this is part of the problem. I mean, what do we thrive on? now in our entertainment but you know reality tv a lot of it is about being judgmental and the you know a cat fight and like there's no real making a judgment in all of that they're being judgmental against each other they're you know they're throwing shade um and there there are times i mean rupaul does a lot of you know the library is open and reading is fundamental and and you know uh spilling the tea and when it's when intent is understood that, okay, we're going to do this, but it's good natured. That's one thing. But when you're actively putting somebody else down mm-hmm. um, and being judgmental, casting aspersion against them, that's where it gets you in trouble. And I'll, I'm honest. Um, and I write in the book, like my family, um, it's like judgment is a dominant gene. We are born brown eyed and judgmental. Um, and so it's something that I still have to work on. And I make choices like I, I recognize when I'm I, I probably don't do it all the time, but I do recognize when I'm having a more judgmental thought of being judgmental thought. And I have to make a choice of, well, OK, is it just me and my husband and I can say something bitchy, um, you know, about somebody on you know, we're watching the Great British Baking Show right now. And it's like, oh, God, why did they, you know, whatever. Um, and that's one thing. And then there's you know, oh, well, wait, how is this going to affect the way I'm interacting with others outside of my like immediate cave or in a very safe space? Um, and so you're constantly making those decisions and, and it's not easy. But once you start to have awareness, you'll continue, hopefully, to notice every time it comes up. Um, similarly, I, I um, challenge, always challenge people, as I mentioned earlier, not to use the word why. Just try for a day not to use the word why in your conversations and when you're asking somebody something you talk around it use other words um instead of saying why was that report late tell say tell me what happened with the report and how it came you know came to be and you'll ultimately be addressing why it was late but you're not putting somebody on the defensive because from the time that we were, you know, infants, um, our parents were always saying to us, why, you know, why did you uh, draw in crayon on the wall? Why did you cut your sister's hair? Why did you do the things? Um, and, and it puts you on the defensive. And then you have 
you know, bosses and teachers and people just always asking you why, 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 why? And so you instantly go to a place of defense. Um, so if you want to get, a, have a more productive conversation, don't use the word why, use one of the other um, uh, inquiry words to start that question. And it's hard. It is really hard to do, but it changes everything. When you, if you can do that and you can dismantle your judgment, personally, I find that the rest of the steps get pretty easy. Yeah, we know that hard conversations are always going to be, you know, difficult to have. There's a reason they're hard conversations. But I think one of the main holdouts that some people have when having those discussions, especially around trying to be more empathetic, is that they may be cognizant of their biases or judgments, and they don't know how to overcome that. So, like, it's one thing for me to be able to say, like, yeah, oh, I have these biases. Well, now that I know that I have them, what can I do to overcome those or not allow them to dictate how I'm having these interactions? And it's one of the things that I feel like I've had conversations with different audience members and stuff is once I point out that we all have our biases, people, like, it's easier for them to look in the mirror and see, like, okay, I have these things. What do I do about it? I don't know what to do with that information now. Yes. Oh, the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> so there's a, a chapter in the book about um, turning your perspective around. And it, there was, I, I relate an experience I had on an in-home interview with a, a woman and she kept using this hand gesture, which it was like she was holding a, a not a basketball, but like maybe a, a a volleyball perhaps in her hands and she kept rotating her hands around one over the other but as though she had an invisible ball in her hand and she kept doing that every time she would talk about you've got to turn it around you've got to look at things from a different perspective and at the time this was interview was um back in 2008 and she was talking about her son um her adult son she was about 55 at the time. Her adult son had been deployed to Iraq. He was in the um, reserves, I think. And he had to do some time in Iraq and she was really worried. But she said, you've just got to turn it around. Instead of being obsessed and mired in the worry, you've got to look at it from a different perspective, you know, and think about how he is safe and he's with, you know, the United States military. And I forget the other things that she said, but if you can start to turn things around, look at things from a different perspective, that can help. Um, if you are finding that your biases or your judgment is so strong and, and, and it, it comes from so many different places, there are times where you just need to seek professional help and counseling um, to work through whatever that might be, because it could be very deep rooted in a trauma or, or some sort of an injury. Um, so I do wanna acknowledge that. Um, but generally it's asking yourself, where's that coming from? What's behind that behavior? How can I turn it around and think about it, approach it in a different way? And it's, it's hard. It isn't, you know, we want to just keep bumping through our life and, you know, get the easiest path from, from A to B and there's so much going on. However, if you are able to do this, if you're able to have the courage to do this and to work on it, 
you really can transform how you see the world and how the world engages with you as well. And that's the thing. Empathy is like, a, it's a two-way street. Um, and it, there's, I, I write about it. It's like a gift exchange um, where you're giving empathy to somebody. And when you're doing that, you're helping them feel seen, feel heard, maybe safe and secure. And that's a really powerful gift. Um, and at the same time, you may be getting empathy back from them, or at some point when you need it, they'll be giving you empathy. Mm -hmm. And I would just encourage everybody. I want to, I, I would end with, um, there's a quote that I love from Maya Angelou and I use it in the book, uh, where she said, I think we all have empathy. We may not have enough courage to display it. And so I do encourage all of us to be courageous, to put yourself out there, take that chance, have some empathy and display it, show people empathy. Be able to say, I can see your point of view. I can see where you're coming from, or I can imagine how you feel. When you're talking to them, when you're responding to a situation, something that they're sharing, you'll probably find that it's gonna open up a whole new level of connection and conversation with them that you weren't experiencing otherwise. I've really enjoyed having you on our show, Rob, and this has just been a, a delightful conversation. I can't re wait to um, read your book. So, Thank you. And I'll just give it one last plug. Tell me more about that, Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time, available right now in hardcover and ebook wherever people prefer to buy books, um, independent bookstores, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and then uh, uh, we are recording the audiobook right now, which I'm narrating, uh, and that'll be out in May. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for joining us today. I've, just like Amanda said, really enjoyed this conversation. It was really fun. Um, and before we fully sign off, do you have any other socials that you want to throw out to our audience? Oh, please, please. Um, yes, please find me on social media. So on LinkedIn, uh, if you just search Rob Volpe, V-O-L-P-E, Empathy Activist, you will find me. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, Rob Volpe, Empathy Activist. Uh, Instagram, Empathy underscore Activist. Uh, TikTok is Empathy Activist. And also on Peloton, if you're um, a Peloton writer, uh, Empathy Activist, and give me a high five at some point. And also on Twitter, RM Volpe. Um, is my my Twitter handle. So I would love to connect and continue the conversation with people on any of those platforms. Awesome. I will make sure I have all of those in our show notes for anybody who wants to follow you. And thank you all for listening today. Please feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at TouchySubsPod. Email us any questions, comments, or concerns to touchysubjectspodcast at gmail.com. And please rate us on your favorite podcast listening app. It really does help the show out. And in the meantime, don't be afraid to challenge, ask, and discuss when it comes to touchy subjects.